Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and she who dies and lives and never dies, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor and three-faced woman, Elisa Quitney. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about Sandman Volume 5, A Game of You, Chapter 3. Bad Moon Rising. Bad Moon Rising was written by Neil Gaiman, drawn by Colleen Doran, colored by Daniel Vazo, and lettered by Todd Klein. This issue was edited by Karen Berger, assisted by Elisa Quitney, cover by Dave McKean. I don't make jokes. I just never got the knack. Time to wake up. In Bad Moon Rising, Hazel and Foxglove wake from their dreams, scared almost to death. They start to compare notes when Thessaly knocks on their door, who came in to check on them at two in the morning, somehow knowing they were having bad dreams. Thessaly takes them upstairs to check on Wanda, who is also having bad dreams. When they get to Barbie's door, it's locked, but luckily Wanda has the keys. They go inside to find Barbie asleep in her bed, clutching a glowing porpentine to her chest. Thessaly instructs Wanda to carry Barbie up to George's room, but not wake her up or destroy the glowing gem. Thessaly says it may be the only thing keeping her alive. When they get to George's room, Thessaly casually says he's in the bathtub because she killed him and put him in there. She also tells them that they can't call the cops and they can't leave the room. Wanda tries to leave but can't will herself to move, and they all realize that they are stuck there to ride whatever this is out to its conclusion. As Thessaly gathers a knife, hammer, and nails, the women wonder if she's going to kill them too, but Thessaly says, why would I want to do that? She explains that George was sending birds throughout the house to give everyone bad dreams, but she's not really sure why, so she's going to ask George, who is dead? In the bathtub. While the women freak the fuck out, Thessaly goes about the business of cutting off George's face, ears, eyes, and tongue, and then nailing it all to the wall so they can have a good chat. While Wanda vomits, Thessaly wakes up George, who tells her that he serves the cuckoo and that he was invading their dreams to get them to destroy Barbie's gem. He tells Thessaly that Barbie and the cuckoo are in the land of dreams. He then begs Thessaly to kill him again, but she just shushes him and says they're in a pretty pickle now. Thessaly isn't sure exactly what's going on, but the gem Barbie is clutching looks like a dream stone. She decides to call upon the moon to help them get into Barbie's dream, but when she does, she first misgenders Wanda and then excludes Wanda altogether from the ceremony calling on the moon. The moon arrives in both the form of three women, and just one, and is pissed. Clearly, the moon does not like Thessaly either. But the moon grants her request to gain access to the dream world. Thessaly takes Hazel and Foxglove with her, leaving Wanda behind to watch over Barbie, even though Wanda wants to go with them. Outside, the I-don't-like-dogs lady mutters to herself, but is also the only one who notices that the moon temporarily disappeared in the night sky and that shit ain't right. As Foxglove, Hazel, and Thessaly disappear into the night, Wanda talks to Barbie, who is the only one there to talk to. Until George's face on the wall says... Uh, can we talk? All right, Elisa. Wow. I have to tell you, I was texting you as I'm reading this being like, oh my God, this is so good. Everybody has been talking about a game of you since we started doing uh, Sandman. People have been mentioning it to me. They can't wait for us to get to a game of you. And I have to say, like, I completely understand why. What is your response to this issue? Oh, well, first of all, this is very hard to be objective 
I, I can still remember the smell of the pencil boards. You know, you, back in the day, you'd open them up, you'd see the boards. They would have a smell. You could catch a little bit of a scent of, you know, wherever the artist's house was or, the, you know, right. if they were a heavy smoker, which Colleen Doran was <laughs> not, not. But, you know, Steve Dillon pages, you could smell that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, so I... I can't, you know, be completely objective. But for me, this is a certain kind of squirmy, delicious delight. And it's, you know, the Save the Cat folks talk about the uh, fun and game section or the promise of the premise. And you can feel this is we are beginning the fun and games of getting all these people together and finding out who they are and how it odds with who we first thought they were. Is oh. that was a very weirdly constructed sentence, but you know, you know what I mean. <laughs> I get it. I get it. And I, I also don't think that like there's, there's no need for you to be objective. Objectivity is something that people actually cannot be so like or cannot have. So like you don't need to be objective. And especially, I imagine the experience of working on something like this, um, you know, must have been a particular kind of glee. You know, just seeing something come together, like me just watching it, just reading it. Um, um, you know, in this moment, seeing the antagonist be clear, the protagonist be clear, what is happening, um, the stakes being raised, everybody being involved, all of these things going on. Um, it's really wonderful. And I'm so emotionally involved in this, not just as a, a writer looking at the structure and how well the structure is ticking along, but also like just being emotionally involved in what's going on with Wanda being very interested in Thessaly and what the fuck's going on with that. There's so much. It's just great. Well, I think one of the things that you you touched on is I got to see this unfold a little bit like improv, where part yeah. of the amazingness is that people are creating something right in front of your eyes in real time. Mm-hmm. And I mean, okay, yeah. it's not exactly in front of your eyes, but it it felt like that. And even though now this is, what, 30 years? <laughs> 30 years! Um, <laughs> have gone by but the energy of something that was created in this way is it's different than a tv program this was neil gaiman sitting alone late at night because that's when he wrote back in the day probably smoking Uh british marlboro reds and (laughs) inventing this and then you know this is in this case colleen doran sitting in her studio and creating this and it's there's a, a ticking clock so this is you cannot you cannot chase perfection here what you have mm. to do is get to the essence of thing of the thing as quickly as you can and so there's a dynamic life energy to all of this that i i think it's hard to duplicate you know without that that ticking, ticking clock. It's what we still feel in Dickens, you know, with his um, serialized fiction. It's that feeling of people were hungry and gobbling this up. And this was, Mm -hmm. you know, this was filmed in front of a live audience kind of energy. I love all of that. Um, And so much of this, so much of what's going on in the story, um, while having like all of that movement, all of that narrative, like momentum moving through still has these like deeply personal moments, like the exclusion of Wanda is heartbreaking. The revelation of Hazel's pregnancy to Foxglove when Hazel was not ready to reveal that yet, right? And this is not the time for that discussion, you know, Um, all of that, I think is really 
neat. Um, there's so much stuff going on and, uh, and I'm excited. So let's go ahead and move into the cover art. Uh, this week we have the title on the top half of the cover art with a blurry, like kind of mid afternoon cityscape behind it and these light pastel colors, which are not colors that Dave McKean typically traffics in or is this kind of light, hazy sense of the city, uh, during the day. And the bottom half is, you know, tones of gold and dark brown. We have a naked body curling up, you know, with something, an angel, a devil over their shoulder. I'm not really sure how to read that. Um, behind it, there's a poster of the moon with Marco Luna written on it. Uh, there'll be more on that in a bit. Uh, to the other side, there's a man's face kind of half in shadow. Um, and I have no idea what it all means, but I love it. It's got like this weird vibe to it. Um, everything is slightly like the, the face and head on the body are sort of out of, um, out of perspective. One looks way bigger than the other. It's just, it's so fascinating. So what did you think of this cover? Uh, well, you know, I, I could see a sort of theme of light and refracted yeah. light in both the cover where it kind of, there are parts of this cover that look to me as though, Almost images were broken up like a kaleidoscope breaks up the shapes of an image and then mm -hmm. put back together in this way that that made me think of refracted light and prisms of light. And um, and I, of course, the moon has that delicious creepiness that you get in silent films where, you know, you suddenly see some slightly, you know, some anthropomorphized moon face and it always has something a little creepy about it, um, seeing yeah. the face in the moon. Uh, you know, in Colleen Doran's art as well, I think there's, it's, you know, there is this interesting way she has of dealing with the light that I think both of us really responded to. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Colleen Doran doing the interior art. Um, first of all, like I, I came upon Colleen Doran when we started doing Sandman because she's very active in, in all the people that have been following now on Twitter who have been involved in the art and have been involved in the writing and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I've seen her on Twitter sharing artwork from projects that she's done with Neil. Um, and I immediately followed her because I love her style. Like I just finished reading a uh, snow glass apples, um, which I got a copy of, uh, and which she illustrated and which I don't think I could possibly recommend enough both the story told from the perspective of the, you know, the, the queen and snow white, um, and just that artwork that is so incredibly beautiful that I would just make posters of it and put it all over my house. Like I love, she's got this, this like sort of art deco sort of feel to what she's doing. It's so incredibly beautiful. I absolutely love it. Um, they also did a project called Chivalry, which is uh, on my list to get next. I'm looking very forward to that. So, um, so I have to say, like, I started seeing her artwork as she was sharing it on Twitter, you know, when we started this project and have been waiting to get to her art. Um, and Dor Doran's approach to the art is um, consistent, I think, with the rest of the drawings. So it doesn't really feel like a shocking diversion from the art style that we've had. It melds really beautifully with everything else that we've already done. But I, I love that a woman is drawing this issue, which I think is very much a woman's story and the way in which she is able to get 
um, like Wanda's um, body language expressing those emotions that she's feeling as she's being excluded from everything that's going on. That is this, you know, woman at the moon at night, you know, kind of thing. This very feminine experience that Wanda is being excluded from. And we see that body language. And I'm like, you know, there is something in that that feels so innately familiar to a feminine experience. And I just love that we had a woman artist on this. I wouldn't have hated it if, if one of these amazing men had drawn it either. But I, I do really appreciate that on this issue. Yeah. And Karen Berger, as an editor, did look uh, mm-hmm. for women who, you know, to to give those opportunities yeah. to. I think that there are, uh, you know, when a system is in place and perhaps not as many women are, are reading comics or recognizing that this is a career they could follow, you know, it... Yeah. it um, there's all there's subtle ways to discourage. So I know Karen actively did try to encourage. In terms of Colleen's artwork, one of the things that I really love is how skillful she is at taking things away. I feel like I nearly couldn't say skillful she is. I don't know why that was a hard thing for me to say. But we have these scenes with Thessaly facing off with the moon. And Colleen is removing outlines to show how the moon is bathing everything in this light and magic. But we still have all the tension and drama um, and the acting in, in terms of the interplay between the characters. And it works visually very well. This is the way light, a, a powerful light source would act. But it also works on a metaphoric level because this is the part of this story where we're beginning to lose our outlines and our borders and our boundaries between yeah. dream world and waking Um and 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 between you know who people are as individuals and you know who they are as menstruating woman pregnant woman um Thessaly is a crone mm-hmm. uh so there's there's just a lot of i i'm i'm leaving the the issue of wanda for the moment because i know we both have a lot to say about wanda yes mm-hmm. and more yeah. about Thessaly so yes definitely definitely all right so you know speaking of wanda let's get started with wanda who i feel like the um the narrative weight of this uh issue is with wanda like i feel very emotionally tied in to where wanda is um and the thing that there's one line that wanda has that breaks my heart in this issue is you know when she's talking to barbie after being you know left there alone with a face on the wall you know by Thessaly and uh and everyone else um she says maybe I'm not the woman I thought I was because she was judging herself for vomiting she was judging herself for not she was looking for I think reasons why you know she she wasn't as strong as she wanted to be or whatever you know um looking for a fault in herself for why things were this evening was going the way that it was um and the way that Thessaly excludes Wanda and misgenders her um it's cruel it's unfair but I think at the same time representative of a very real experience um and I don't mind that it's in the story. I mean, that shit is real and seeing the effects of it, how it disrupts Wanda's confidence and makes her question herself as a woman because she threw up when a man's face is being ripped off his body. You know, anybody in that circumstance could absolutely find themselves vomiting. Um, It's all heartbreaking, but it does feel real. And I think this part illustrated, and, and definitely I felt this, how dehumanizing it is when people refuse to acknowledge who you are. You know, um, yeah, it's just it was 
it's so incredibly powerful to me. I just want to pop in and say, I think that also this illusion that there's one correct way to be a woman or a man. I, I yes. took the Enneagram and I was I was in my writer's group yesterday uh -huh. and I said, oh, it's just being socialized as a woman. I bet all women are twos, at which point <laughs> two of the women said, I'm a five. And someone else said, I'm a seven. So uh, <laughs> there is no one. I'm sorry, that's only amusing if you've done Enneagram stuff. And if not, uh, <laughs> I, I apologize. Uh, but yeah, so I, I was thinking about all this gender stuff. And I want to say this now because it's not in my notes. And I can't believe I forgot yeah. to put it in my notes. But um, okay, so I, I am in this writing group. We are, call ourselves the story whisperers. And people bring these fascinating nuggets of information. I don't know where this nugget came from. I haven't footnoted it. I haven't corroborated it. But this is what one of my uh, members said. They said, you might not know this, but... 2% uh, of the population has some element of, uh, uh, of both genders in their mm -hmm. uh, genitalia. So that 2%, biologically. biologically, sorry, so just mm -hmm. biologically, um, you know, we tend to think that everyone, it, pretty much everyone is born either mm -hmm. with male genitalia or female genitalia. But no, it turns out 2%. Again, I, I someone will have to corroborate this. I, I will try yeah. and look it up. Mm -hmm. And then they said, and that's the same percentage of the population that's a natural redhead. So Interesting. Mm -hmm. I, you know, it made me realize that we we create this dichotomy. And now I'm thinking that every time I see a redhead, there's somebody, you know, who biologically mm -hmm. was, is the correct term intersex? Um, I believe the term is intersex, yes. So mm -hmm. um, if it's not true, it feels true. Uh, and but, it, uh, it, it, yeah. And a lot of times what happened historically is that at like at birth or whenever a doctor would pick one and then just that person would just grow up as that, you know, or whatever. Um, and I think that the Which was not a great, yeah, it was not a great, uh, that's, that, that, right. that turned out not to always be so good. As a, a and system. gender at se and sex at birth are two different yes. things, and I think that our I find our obsession with putting people into one category or another, and also not listening to people when they say this is who I am. I think that has to do with power dynamics associated with patriarchy. To like that's my read on this is that because we have to know who to empower and who to disempower, that when we are are left in a space where we have to allow for um, for people to understand who they are on their own terms, um, then we are taking power away from the power structures that we've set up. So I think that there's a lot to that. Um, but also like people are who they are. And when they tell you who they are, you respect who they are. And Wanda is a woman. Um, and I know that I think that this may be the part that people were quoting when they were talking about like, you know, turfs in the work and all of that kind of stuff. There's Should a we big read difference. I'm so sorry. Let's redefine TERF just because maybe not everyone listening is familiar. Yes. Trans-exclusionary radical feminist. Somebody who is, you know, like really like into womanhood, but also very much into denying womanhood to people who are, are part of that group as well. Um, and so I think that like there has been accusations of a game of you being TERFy. And of course, I haven't read all of it now, but having seen this exclusion of Wanda in the feminine 
you know, experience of talking to the moon and in going back into the dreamland, um, that what I'm seeing here is an accurate portrayal of what actually happens in the world. And I don't see anything in the text that is agreeing with Thessaly on any of that stuff. So like, I personally don't see a problem with representing that. I think that is part of an experience of people not recognizing your humanity and who you know you are. Absolutely. So I was, you know, doing a little research. And mm -hmm. um, so there are two DC writers who've commented on this that I know of. Mm -hmm. I, I was looking at High Benders, uh, Sam and Companion. So there's Caitlin R. Kiernan, who's uh, an mm -hmm. incredible writer of um, uh, horror and dark fantasy and many other literary mm -hmm. uh, forms of fiction as well. And um, they, uh, I believe, uh, I, I was looking up, you know, what is the correct, you know, mm -hmm. what 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 Caitlin uh, feels. So uh, I think earlier uh, she had transitioned to female and used to identify as transgender, but now mm -hmm. identifies as gender fluid, which wasn't really mm -hmm. uh, an option uh, earlier. Right. And mm -hmm. then there's Rachel Pollack, uh, who's uh, a good friend of mine. And she's been described uh, as a trans icon, as well as science fiction author, tarot historian, deck designer. Um, she created DC's first trans superhero. So they both have different takes on the fact that Wanda doesn't get to go on yeah. the moon's path. And that is, again, I think that often I'll hear when people make arguments, they'll say, well, this one person who mm -hmm. could be viewed as, you know, having having uh, a, a, an intimate association with or, or ability to speak for, you know, has this position. And I'm thinking it's so complicated. I don't think yeah. we can ever just take any one individual as indicative of how everyone is going to respond. Um, yes. I, I think we'll have to talk more about Thessaly. I will say... Um, that some of, you know, you know, there was that old definition of human as a, 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 a featherless biped. And, uh, and then someone, you know, got a plucked chicken and said, so is this a person? Yeah. Well, as a woman who is postmenopausal, I find that a lot of these descriptions, you know, I mean, obviously, Thessaly's mm -hmm. also way, Thessaly's way older than I am. But, <laughs> right. um, but you know, a lot of our definitions of female, if you get too biological, mm -hmm. what about women who aren't able to have children um, yeah. or who, you know, or who are past childbearing age? Does that now make me less of a woman? And if you get too caught up in these definitions, you can get into that territory. I also, yes. you know, I mean, I don't want to get into a whole discussion of sports. I, I have to say that sports to me are such a small part of the identity pie. I, I mm -hmm. you know, I am one of those people that thinks sports, that's what other people like to watch. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I think in terms of this, I mean, one of the things that we're going to probably segue into is talking about is Thessaly meant to be the author's message? Is she, right. you know, sort of standing in for the author and saying this is what male and female means? And I, I, my personal argument is no, um, not just based on what Neil has said, but based on a close reading. And also to really understand, you know, Thessaly is 
Well, first of all, Thessaly is really, really old. Let's start with that. Yeah. And uh, and you mm-hmm. have some great things to say about besides, you know, <laughs> she's she's a little, you know, she's she's not a new age witch. No, she is very old age, um, <laughs> you know. And the thing is, is that as I'm I'm reading this, like I have to say, like I am enjoying Thessaly like as a character, and that is different from saying that Thessaly is a good person, that I agree with any of her stances on anything, or that I don't see like she's clear evil like even the moon hates her right and she's only doing good right saving hazel foxglove wanda and barbie because their goals align with hers and that makes her such a fun character to to watch like i am very engaged when thessaly's on the page because she's not good she's definitely evil and the only reason she's doing good is because it meets her it's her ends like it matches with her ends and she would do i think she would just as as quickly like rip any of their faces off as well so i find her really interesting and i love 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 when a villain is on the same side as the heroes only because they have no other choice and again pro Protagonist and antagonist is different from heroes and villains. Heroes and villains are archetypes that are, you know, a moral lean toward the moral good or lean toward the moral bad. Um, so that's what I'm talking about when I talk about her in terms of a villain. Um, I love that she's smart. She's determined. She's got knowledge. She's ready to get shit done. She's a very active character. Really enjoy that. Um, and yes, you know, like she is also terrible in a lot of ways. And, you know, she is, I think anybody who says this is a turf can absolutely be justified in making that statement. Um, But the thing is, is that you can love a character without approving of the way that they behave and characters that are in a story to represent a particular kind of thing um, can also be in a story without necessarily being what the author wants to say about it. Um, Thessaly is there and because she's, you know, working with our good guys does not make her a good guy. It means that her, her goals just happen to align with our heroes at this point. Um, so I think that Thessaly is complicated and interesting and I when she's on the page I am really interested I'm totally into it absolutely well okay so first of all I think there's two ways that authors often show their hand as it were Mm -hmm. you know weight the the meaning one is and maybe this is a, a simpler way when a character has a speech and you feel that little huh I think that's not just Ted Lasso saying that. I think that's Jason Sudeikis saying that's Mm -hmm. where I land, you know, be a Mm -hmm. goldfish or whatever. A subtler way, no, no, not meaning to disparage Ted Lasso, but a subtler way to do that is by showing a character's arc of Mm -hmm. development. And I think in Sandman, you can tell where Neil lands in terms of his values more by how characters grow and change or don't over time. Yeah. Okay. And then I know a little bit about Thessaly because I think, as I said in one of our previous shows, I was pitching for a Thessaly monthly series and got to Mm -hmm. talk with Neil. So she's a witch of the old school and her main motive is Mm self-preservation. And I'm saying this in my language. She's not nice in the way most cats are not nice. (laughs) It's you know I, <laughs> cats, you know that I I love cats, yeah. but you know you let them out into the yard and they are just killing machines. Oh and yeah, I think Thessaly is probably not as gratuitous as a cat. That said, um, it's possible to delight in her efficient wielding of power. 
you know, partially because of the the disconnect between her sweet mousy looks and also <laughs> just how competence is exciting to watch. But, you know, just she isn't admirable. Dream isn't always admirable. But as yeah. I think we'll see as the series goes on, he's going to change and grow. Uh, spoiler <laughs> alert. Thessaly is not going to become a really fuzzy person despite her slippers. Um, but I will tell you more about uh, the lore of Thessaly, according to Neil, uh, in Lucienne's library. Well, I definitely look forward to that. The one thing that I want to hit before we break and move into Lucienne's, where you have tons of information I'm very excited to hear, um, is I just have to hit on this final moment of the story after we've got this whole thing and these like you know the the woman thing and then Wanda being left behind and she's talking to Barbie and she's trying to figure everything out um then George is on the like the face is nailed to the wall blood coming down eyeballs stuck inside of this like it's just horrific and as Wanda is sitting there trying to like process all of her feelings about what's happening uh, we get George on the wall going, uh, can we talk? And I have to say that like that beat as the final beat of the story, the final panel of the story was one of my favorite moments in all of Sandman. Like it is so like, uh, can we talk? Like, is this like really casual moment in this highly escalated space? And I love that, that, con that like sense of contrast there. Um, but also that George is going to remain active in whatever it is that's going on here is delightful. And it is absolutely a moment for me. Like I talk a lot about cliffhangers versus game changers that cliffhangers are where like, we don't know what's going to happen and we're left like, Oh, are they going to survive? And it feels very cheap. And then a game changer is something happens that changes the landscape of the story and we know what happened because we saw it happen um, but at that moment you're like oh my god what is going on now so like the idea that after Thessaly leaves George is like I still have some agency here I would really like to be involved in all of this stuff you know <laughs> to be having that conversation and knowing that in the next you know, issue that I am going to be treated to Wanda having to deal with a talking face on the wall. Love all of that. That moment was such a perfect, like, you know, kind of exclamation point on the end of this issue, which was so great all the way through. So I just had to, I had to shout out to like to Neil and to everybody in that. That was amazing. That was such a great moment. It really was. And I, I think that also leaving, it's such a wonderful moment and leaving Wanda with someone to have conflict and dialogue, uh, you know, it, yeah. is, it's, it's just such a, a more interesting choice than having her sitting alone, telling herself how unpleasant it is to be left with a face. Yes. <laughs> and a talking face makes that, I imagine, even more unpleasant. Anyway, uh, we're going to break now. We'll be back in just a minute with Lucian's Library. All right, so here we are ready for Lucian's Library. Lucian's Library is esoterica, Easter eggs, discussions that may include spoilers. So, you know, traipse forward with us, you know, uh, and with that knowledge. Alisa, what do you have for us in Lucian's Library today? Well, I don't think I've talked about this before today, but mm -hmm. um, Thessaly is not Thessaly's name. Thessaly right. is a place name. She is one of the witches from Thessaly, a region in Greece. She's a Thessalian witch, as the moon tells us. Uh -huh. And later on, we'll in another story, we'll discover another name of hers. 
But again, that's not her true name. It's kind of like in Judaism, we don't get any of the true names of God, the uh-huh. um, J-E-H-O-V-A-H name and the Y-W-H-W. Those are the consonants without the vowels because in, in I guess, uh, ancient religions as in magic, there's the idea that the, the true name carries this, this power, this magic. Um, so Neil has talked to me and also to High Bender in the Salmon Companion about the classical sources for some of this magic. Mm-hmm. So one is the Golden Ass or the Metamorphoses of Apuleius, which I looked up. There's, I think, two potential pronunciations. So have at me, classics majors, because um, <laughs> I was not one. Um, so this is uh, Apuleius wrote. The, I think this is one of those uh, few, if o- or only remaining uh, books of fiction in a way from ancient Greece. Um, ancient, ancient. Yes, is it? Oh God, now I'm not sure if it was in Latin or Greek. Oh God, have at <laughs> me, classics majors. Um, <laughs> Have in a moment. So I, I found uh, a, a translation. I think this may be with some Robert Graves in here uh, translating. So this is from The Golden Ass. I am she that is the natural mother of all things, mistress and governess of all the elements, the initial progeny of worlds, chief of powers divine, queen of heaven, the principle of the god celestial, the light of the goddesses. At my will, the planets of the air, the wholesome winds of the seas, and the silences of a hell be disposed. My name, my divinity, is adored throughout the world in diverse manners, in variable customs, and in many names. For the Phrygians call me Pessinuntica, the mother of the gods. The Athenians call me Cecropian, Artemis. <laughs> uh, the Cyprians, Paphian Aphrodite, the no, not the Canadians, the Candians. <laughs> the Candians? <laughs> the Sicilians call her Stygian Proserpine, and the Eleusians call me Mother of the Corn. Some call me Juno, others Bellona of the Battles, and still others Hecate. So this is this is uh, some of the witchy underpinnings. The Golden Ass is a very amusing and body tale. Mm-hmm. Uh, there <laughs> is there is some sexy, sexy bestiality that makes you look back at Midsummer Night's Dream by Shakespeare and think, you know. Oh, I was thinking about that, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, if you ever said to yourself, was it just the head uh, that got turned into the donkey? And how close did they get? Was she just feeding him, you know, sweet peas? Uh, so there's, there's a lot of that. Um, there's also stories by Lucan, and uh, Neil talks about one story in particular where I think a man is trying to stop the witches from stealing the face of a corpse. And then he manages, but he falls asleep. And I think he wakes up without a nose. And um, all of these, I mean, these are not nice witches. These are baby stealing, uh, nasty, nasty. We're not talking Andorra from bewitched witches. You're right. And mm-hmm. so I think that if, you know, we all still had classics as, as a big part of our education, we'd feel more comfortable thinking, oh, no, this isn't, you know, this mm-hmm. is not a nice and benevolent witch. Yeah. And um, and yet, you know, this was also a time in history where most women, you know, the best they got was to be someone like Penelope, who just has to sit around weaving and unweaving the same thing for a million years, waiting for her husband to come home. These were women of agency and and initiative. So I, I I read this paper that 
compared uh, the Cumean Sibyl and the Thessalian witch. I, it was a fun mm-hmm. deep dive. I also found there were some comics that had been mm-hmm. made, um, I believe, of the Golden Ass. Uh, George Pichard adapted the text into a graphic novel, Les Sorcières de Thessalie. I'm sorry for my mm-hmm. French, in 1985. <laughs> and in 1999, the um, wonderful and uh, often Jaws very erotic stuff. Uh, artist Milo Manera adapted the text into a, a, a pretty abridged graphic novel called Le Métamorphosie au Lacino de Oro. Mm. So again, nice. now, I, now I apologize for my Italian. So, um, so the last thing I wanted to say about witches was mm-hmm. as a kid, I was fascinated by witchcraft. And this was before, you know, all the new age stuff was out. So my mom bought me this book. So I'm holding up oh. a little turquoise book with a very cartoony, uh, cartoony set of witches on the cover. It's called Witches, Potions, and Spells. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a reason I'm going to, to tell you about this. So I don't know anyone else who knows this book. My mom bought it for me when I was nine. It's mm-hmm. edited by Catherine Paulson. And it's Peter Popper Press. The editor does say this book could be dangerous to a beginner in magic. But the stuff in here is so unwholesome. So you've got these cute little kids' pictures. Mm-hmm. And um, there are dry and crush the yellow roots of gander goose. Mix it with menstrual blood and add some to the food of him you love. That's that's one of the more benign ones. I think that's kind of the cla- it's a classic love spell, isn't it? Yes. Take yeah. blood of a sparrow, blood of a bat, and liver of a fox. Mix them thoroughly. Add a few drops to the red wine of your sweetheart. There are ones that are worse. I rendered fat of 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 um, human beings is mentioned in here. Oh, yikes! Um, and this one, I. I Undress completely and at midnight, beneath a full cloudless moon, walk three times around a house or field, throwing behind you at each step a handful of salt. If when you finish none has seen you, him you love will be mad for you. But if you are unsuccessful, he will scorn you and your anguish will deepen. So I... I have this book, which I have treasured. For, I've never tried any of, well, okay, one that involved string. Nothing but string <laughs> and I think maybe some spit. No blood. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. No bats. But so when I came from this book, I, I you know, thought of Thessaly as, as, you know, being the kind of witch who, who would, you know, use some rendered fat from someone you had held oh, quite sure. dear. Yeah. Yeah. If she needed to. Yeah. Thessaly is definitely a complicated kind of character. <laughs> and I can see her definitely, I would see her using the rendered fat of a human being. Perhaps George. I mean, maybe that's why he's in the tub. Who knows? <laughs> um, all right. So one of the other things that I wanted to kind of ask you about is that we we talked last week about the I don't like dogs lady, right? Um, and now here she is. She's back. Is this a moment to show that the weirdness extends beyond the house that they are all living in? Because, of course, you know, I don't like dogs sees that the moon is gone 
And she's like, hey, you know, what the hell with this? Um, and then that's it. So we just, we go to her perspective for just a moment to show that whatever is happening is happening worldwide, that there is a, I think, a broader expansive um, of effect than just what's going on in that room. Um, so I'm kind of interested, like, is this a significant character that we're going to be seeing again? Or what is what is the role of the I don't like dogs lady? Well, you know, I think she started out being a character that Neil had encountered and then he used yeah. her in this story. But she becomes, to my mind, a little bit like a modern day Mad Hetty. Not that she is magical, but she's attuned and tuned into things that most people are passing through their busy lives and not noticing. And I think, you know, there was a, an experiment done, I think, where they had some world class uh, violinist playing an incredible Stradivarius on the street. And most people just walked by and didn't notice anything unusual. And so I think that most of us are so busy with the you know, quotidian minutiae of our days that we <laughs> wouldn't notice something miraculous or something uh, very dire that, you know, was happening. And so she's mm -hmm. she is paying attention, not to what we do, but to things that perhaps are more important. So before we leave Thessaly completely, one of the <laughs> moments that I particularly loved with her is when she, you know, finally gets his his face off, she says, okay, George, I want a word with you, young man, which is mm -hmm. just, it's one of those moments too, where it's, it is such an old lady thing to say. Um, yes. And it's, and it's, it's as though he's been a naughty little boy instead of someone right. she's murdered and, and, you know, and is cursing to this horrible, worse than death existence right now. Mm -hmm. But there was something right before that caught my attention. So we get this description of how Thessaly is cutting off his face and the care she's taking. Mm -hmm. And it seems like a close third POV. And then suddenly we get, perhaps she takes pride in her competence, perhaps not. And at that moment, I thought, oh, interesting. Whose POV are yeah. we in? Now we've got this storyteller's voice coming in. Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting, I feel that in that moment, we've left third person and there is in that storyteller's voice, a little acknowledgement of you, the reader. We are yeah. being told a story here. This is this is not mm -hmm. just people doing stuff and we're voyeurs. This is, we are present in this stream. Right. And when we're using the narration voice, like my question is, whose voice is that, right? Who is the narrator? I mean, is it Dream? You know, is Dream watching all of this and now kind of inserting his uh, his narration into it? Um, it, it is really a, like an interesting question. And when you switch POV like that, it always it always means something. There's always a reason why the writer does that, you know, but figuring that out is kind of part of the fun. It could be Dream. I wonder if there's an argument made. Could it be Lucien? Ooh, interesting. Ah, I like it. Well, that's a great note to end Lucian's library on and go into what is your favorite page? This is where we talk about our favorite artwork in the issue. Uh, so what did you what did you particularly enjoy? I, I, you know, I tried to think of something different from what you had already said. <laughs> but I that face off with the moon uh, face yeah. off. I'm sorry. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, Thessaly is just so badass. Mm -hmm. And again, her her deliberately meek, you know, 
coloration. I mean, obviously, these are our choices to look so so mm-hmm. uh, unthreatening, and I, I love that. I, I yeah. Can you say yeah. anything about you responded to that as well? I. I no. Yeah, that's that's absolutely my favorite art. Um, I love the way we've got the three faces, you know, of the of the moon, but the moon speaks uh, sometimes refers to themselves as a plural and sometimes herself as a singular, which I think is a really interesting kind of shift in perspective. I love the way that we see in Thessaly's perfectly circular glasses, right? The reflection of the faces of the moon. Um, I love how bright the light is. Um and how the shadow it's basically just like essentially like three colors there's like kind of a tealish blue a deeper blue and then the white and that's where all of this storytelling is happening in that space um i love that it's so bright that wanda feels like she has to protect herself from it and yet the light feels to me and maybe this is just something that i'm reading into it like it also embraces wanda like it's embracing everybody in this. Um, so there's so much in that that I really loved. And I think that that artwork is just so incredibly beautiful and feels like, you know, wonderfully feminine, so bright, uh, the way that her glasses reflect the shape of the moon, like all of it, I think is wonderful. And I especially love in the writing too, in that moment, how, uh, you know, like the moon hates Thessaly. The moon is like, fuck off, girl. But obviously, for some reason, has to, you know, give her what she wants. And so does it because the moon is bound by the same laws and rules and whatever, but does not like it, does not enjoy Thessaly. And I really kind of love that moment. Yeah, no, that's a wonderful moment. And I, I realized, you know, we, we have to talk about our favorite parts as well. Yeah. And I left out one thing I'd meant to it's not my favorite part, but it is a very cool part where we mm-hmm. discovered that the porpentine, last issue we discovered the porpentine is a, a jeweled pendant. Mm-hmm. This is the issue where we find out it's a dreamstone and it's probably yeah. all that's keeping Barbie alive. So it's not just mm-hmm. some throwaway bauble. It's not like that uh, Titanic pendant where you think, right? it's really hideous. <laughs> yeah, My apologies really to awful. anyone who bought it. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> But uh, the other thing that I, you know, again, I just loved as a part was, um, you know, Foxglove saying witchcraft, like, you know, new age. And Thessaly Mm -hmm. just says, no, quite the opposite, really. Oh, yeah, that is a great moment in the story. And then you get that sense, too, when she says quite the opposite. We're like, oh, you know, because I think that, like, one of the things that we get from new age is that it is something... um, like new age feels to me performative and highly sanitized, right? You know, when you're talking about old age, you're talking about the kind of shit that cuts off a man's face and tacks it to the wall, you know? Which is, you know, and and I love that difference where I think Foxglove says, you know, oh, we did a similar thing with white candles and salt. And I felt really empowered. And, you know, and Thess was like, did anything happen? (laughs) You know, Uh that's that's not the point. (laughs) I should say in my own life, I think magic is, you know, if if you can use magic to feel empowered, that is powerful. And I really don't want to be personal friends with anyone who is, you know, contemplating nailing a face to a wall. 
Right. I mean, these are dark arts, you know, like these are, but that's one of the things that I love is that that old age, the older it gets, the more brutal it gets, you know? And so I think that that's a really interesting thing. And especially for Thessaly as to self-identify that way, um, I think is really interesting. Um, And for me, I mean, like I have to say, like, I love so much of this issue that it was really hard, but I got to say that final narrative hit with George being like, uh, can we talk? You know, is now a good time? You know, like <laughs> there is something about that, that hit at the end that, that has this sense of extreme confidence in where we've been and in where we're going. And I absolutely love that. If you enjoyed this discussion and would like to join in, Patreon supporters can chat with us and each other through our Patreon Discord channel. To find out how you can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Other ways to show your support. Write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or draw down the moon. (laughs) This episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack, it's just you and me, darling. You, me, and a skinned corpse in the bathtub. Thanks so much for joining us. We will be back next time with Beginning to See the Light, issue number four of A Game of You. Until then, uh, can we talk? Can we talk?